This is the Humerian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts for the well-being of yours. This is Dr. Sean Benzinger here with uh, Amy Baker, and we're here today to be able to interview Dr. David Hanscom. Uh, Dr. Hanscom has authored uh, a book called Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap uh, uh, Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain. Uh, Dr. Hanscom, thank you for joining us, and we certainly appreciate you taking the time to allow us to interview you and ask questions. Yeah, no, thank you. I really appreciate this opportunity to uh, share my thoughts. Yeah, great. Um, so it's interesting because uh, this is actually a revised and reissued version of the book because there's some new scientific research um, that was published after the first edition came out. Um, and it's uh, sort of interesting because you uncovered um, some studies that were supporting what you'd already seen in practice about the physical and emotional pain are sort of equal factors when you're thinking about this idea of treating chronic pain. And so I wondered if you could just share a little bit more about both what you were kind of already seeing in your practice, but then also what this research um, sort of brought to light. Well, I was in chronic pain for about 15 years myself, which was pretty extreme the last seven. And the first book is based on my own experience coming out of this abyss is what I call it. But I was lucky. I honestly didn't know how I got into this thing and how I came out of it. And I basically shared my experiences with some research on it. Then I have a friend of mine who is a great guy. He's, his hobby is reading neuroscience papers. So he downloaded some like 11,000 research papers and looked at over probably 500 of them. I ended up reading uh, probably over 100 of them myself. And the research the last two years is stunning. Even the last six months is stunning. Is that they now can apply very refined techniques to the brain. And the bottom line with chronic pain is that the brain gets programmed from birth through consciousness anyway. And then with pain impulses coming into the brain very quickly, the brain gets rewired to keep these impulses going. And then what the neuroscience summaries state is that chronic pain circuits get connected with other life events, then the memory can't get erased. And so once these pathways get embedded in the brain, why they become permanent. So it's like riding a bicycle. Once you're embedded in the nervous system, they are permanent. So a couple things changed in the book. First one is that the first book was about back pain, and this applies to any chronic disease state, whether it's anxiety, insomnia, tinnitus, burning in your feet, stomach issues. There's over 30 symptoms of a sustained stress chemical response in your body. And so that's why I pulled the word back out of the second part of the title. We used to be a spine surgeon's roadmap out of chronic pain. Now it's just a surgeon's roadmap. But it applies to any chronic um, condition that is just persistent and just drives you crazy. So neurologically, um, it's an issue. Second of all, human consciousness is develops by interacting with other human beings. That's how it all develops. We have language and interactions. And it turns out that this term, one of my missions now just hit me two days ago, is to get rid of this term mental health. It makes no sense because the mind doesn't exist without the body. The body doesn't exist without the mind. It's just a unit. So it's just the neurological system that's in charge of this whole thing. And you can't have an orchestra without a conductor, right? And it turns out that this sensory input is how the body reacts to the environment. And so it's a physical threat like sustained heat or cold or whether it's too loud of a noise. Those cause stress. For humans, you have a problem is that thoughts create the same thing. And compared to, and compared to other animals, you can't escape your thoughts. So as you get older, you have this sustained 
I'll use the word assault, of unpleasant thoughts that you can't escape, then the research shows that the harder you try to escape them, of course, we try not to think about something, you think about it more. So I is showing up pretty clearly that the basis for chronic pain is human consciousness and the inability to escape our thoughts. Then you get those circuits fired up and start plugging in different body parts. And so it turns out that the probably what we call mental health, but I'm going to call it just simply sensory input in the form of concepts and thoughts is probably the basis of chronic pain. So to me, it's the neurological system, like the muscular system, like the digestive system. And it turns out that what I call mental health is actually more of an impact on the body's health than physical health. Very interesting. So that's why I think that term has to disappear. This term mental health has got to disappear. You know, years ago, they there was some research uh, on car accidents, um, mm-hmm. people that were injured in car accidents. And what was very interesting was that if, in fact, you were, let's say, rear-ended and uh, the person got out and said, hey, it's my fault, I, I did it, and they did, it, it was their fault, that the patient had a tendency to recover at a normal rate. But if the person right. got out, caused the accident, lied about it, lied to the insurance company, and lied to the police, that often they either wouldn't get better or they wouldn't get better until after their case was settled. And what an right. interesting onset of that, you know, it, it, that was the most direct, but back then there was, I mean, that was probably 20, 25 years ago, some of that research came out, but there was nothing that supported it. And listening to you today, that's just like the perfect tie-in of having a negative thought of how dare that guy, he lied, he cheated, he, and you can't get those thoughts out of your mind. Thus, it retains that pain that's associated with that accident. Make That makes all the well, sense in the world. Yeah, they make, well, it's a perfect segue into the neuroscience because what they now know is they say neurons that fire together wire together. Hmm. So in the process that we work on wow. is that when you're angry, so first of all, pain causes anger, right? Nobody's yep. happy about being in pain. Then other life circumstances, that cause, of course, cause anger and frustration that people aren't happy about. And people get trapped by the pain. They get trapped by circumstances, whether it's money, relationships, or job, whatever then they both cause anger. So when outside circumstances cause anger, they'll link to the pain pathways and vice versa. So it's just simply, it's not really psychological. It's actually a very clear neurological basis for what you just said. This is not a psychological issue. Hmm. Basically, your neurons are linked. And I always tell people in the process, there's some basic foundation building in what I call stage one on my website. But stage two, people honestly don't get better until they process their anger. The problem is the more legitimate your anger, the harder it is to let go, right? But it's still adrenalized to your nervous system. So part of it is the linkage of neurons. But the second thing is, which is as important or more important, is that when you're angry and you have a sustained anger, you have a sustained adrenaline response. So it's like driving your car down the freeway in second or third gear. And so that's why you get over 30 symptoms of a sustained adrenaline response with migraine headaches, ringing in the ears, burning in the feet, irritable bowel, spastic bladder, all those have to do with the body chemistry. So you end up with a chronic, not only uh, an emotional state that's unhealthy, a chronic pain, then you end up with chemical changes in the body. So you end up with this total body-involved condition instead of just pain. Well, it turns out that anxiety is the pain. In other words, that's where this word pain is an interesting word because it's just an unpleasant 
response to the environment that allows you to survive. And a friend of mine, Dr. Fred Luskin out of Stanford, wrote a book called Forgive for Good. And he's become a friend of mine. We meet on a regular basis. We've done seminars together. And it's when his book came into the practice is when people started to go pain-free. So the process is about going pain-free, not managing the pain. I mean, people really shift all pain pathways and go into non-pain pathways. But Fred's point was that the human organism is designed only to survive. That's it. It's not designed to have a good time. So when your body is always processing your input and you're unconsciously behaving in a way to protect yourself and stay safe, that's how the species evolved. So you're not staring into bright lights, you're not listening to super loud music, you're unconsciously shifting in your, in your chair so your skin doesn't break down. So your entire organism is designed to survive, and that includes your thoughts. So if things are going well, if you notice, your brain will start looking for danger. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so one of the things that um, you had talked about in the book is this idea of giving patients who maybe were signed up for surgery prehab or sort of mm. self-exercises and things that they could do um, to calm their nervous system. I'm assuming it was sort of in preparation for their procedure, but you found that in some cases the, the effects of that mental work was so positive mm. that those right. folks didn't even need surgery because of that connection. Wow. So I'm, I'm kind of curious if Very you can at least tip our readers or our listeners off a little bit um, about what some of those practices are or those things that um, the methods that you, you provide to your patients um, to help them with that sort of mental work, right? So that's that may be a new concept for some of our listeners that yeah, I think absolutely. I'm going in for a this physical thing, a surgery, but there's, a, there's mental work I can do to help my outcome. Right. So this is where the data is incredibly clear, where I, unfortunately for me personally, I spent about 10 years being very, very aggressive as a surgeon. I felt like lots of surgeons and other doctors and patients that if you tried everything, surgery is sort of the ultimate answer, right? right? I think the public sort of thinks that. So I first of all learned out that the surgery is only the answer if you have something you can fix. So for instance, if you go to the dentist with mouth pain and you start doing procedures, you're not going to really solve the problem compared to just fixing a broken tooth, right? Right. So you have to see the problem. So first of all, surgery is indicated only for structural problems, which I see as something you can identify in a test and the symptoms match. And that happens actually probably less than less than five or ten percent of the time of all the spine patients we see. Wow. And I'm talking about spine surgery, but this applies to anything. Second of all, that the data is really, really clear on this for over sixty years. We know that when you have anxiety, depression, fear of avoidance, catastrophizing, lack of sleep like a physical conditioning, poor nutrition, high-dose narcotics, all those things pretend a poor surgical outcome, and it's very, very consistent. There are hundreds of papers that document that problem. Then what I found out a couple of years ago, which has which actually been in literature for a long time, is that if you operate in the presence of chronic pain, you can induce chronic pain at the new surgical site between 40 to 60% of the time. Wow. In other words, if you have chronic neck pain or back pain, and you have a simple chest biopsy or hernia repair, you can cause chronic pain at the new surgical site up to 40 to 60% of the time, and 5 to 10% of the time, it can become permanent. Wow. So that is amazing. The, and then finally, they set me off. So I didn't know that data. I just found that out about two years ago, but it's been around for a while. Then finally, there's a paper out of Baltimore published in 2014 that shows that less than 10% of surgeons, first of all, we are trained in this stuff. We do know that these are risk factors for poor outcomes. 
but the business of medicine has gotten in the way and we are profiled on our procedures and our productivity, it turns out that pretty much every procedure we do has been documented to actually not work. So it shows that less than 10% of surgeons are actually assessing these variables and treating those before surgery. So, so about 20 years ago, I went to just operating structural problems, but a significant percent of patients still weren't doing well. I did not understand chronic pain. And then about six years ago, a couple, of my, a couple of my nurses said, look, the patients that are going through this prehab process are doing so much better than the ones that aren't that we just have to make a decision as a team not to do surgery unless somebody's willing to engage in preparing themselves for surgery. Mm. So it tra- transformed my practice because a lot of people just don't want to do this. Just want to, yeah. I just want to be Absolutely. fixed. Absolutely. Yeah. They want you to it's, fix it. No, it's the, the, the quote-unquote hard work. Yeah. I mean, right? It's Quick changing, right. Yeah, Absolutely. changing personal sense. behavior. Mm-hmm. Those nurses, actually, though, they're amazing. Actually, it's incredibly easy. We talk about that in a second. And there's also reasons why people, people become addicted, addicted to their pain. They don't want to give it up. Yeah. That's the problem. So work is at, the work is actually easy. Is the willingness to actually be open yeah. is a key, right? Yeah, absolutely. So those people didn't come back, which I didn't, didn't feel good about. But what happened, which was shocking, is that there's a disease called spinal stenosis where the, is, I tell my patients it's like the narrow part of an hourglass where it just constricts down, opens up. And when you stand up and walk, it gets worse. You sit down, it gets better. So it's a classic structural problem that causes leg pain. Correct. So my first book said, look, if you have spinal stenosis or a structural problem in the presence of chronic pain, do the surgery more aggressively because people in chronic pain can't tolerate the extra stress of a structural problem, right? So I did quite a bit of surgery, and then I noticed still a lot of patients weren't doing very well. Then this other data came out, and we made a decision, even in light of the most significant structural problems, that we're going to do what we call prehab first, which means we work on sleep, which is number one. We stabilize medications. We we have them do some simple exercises to start calming down the nervous system, and just go through a process of becoming aware of chronic pain, understanding it, working on it. And then people, we did that for at least eight to twelve weeks on every patient. Then patients would come in for their final visit before surgery. Their pain was gone. Hmm. And so these were spinal canals. Normally, spinal canals about fifteen millimeters in diameter. Right. And, these, and we started operating at around 9 or 10 millimeters. And these canals were down to 4, 5, and 6 millimeters, severe leg pain. Right. They were fine. They were walking, standing, no limitations at all. And my fellows come into my clinic, and they're just shocked. Right. So what's happened, the book has literally decimated my elective surgical practice. <laughs> I was going to say, this is, this so is not good for business. Hell, it's not good for business. And the only, <laughs> honestly, the only reason I can survive is I'm a complex spine surgeon. Yeah. I'm a Seattle senior spine surgeon, and so we do complex tumors, traumas, and infections. And really, uh, unfortunately, much of my complex surgery is trying to salvage patients who have, have had failed prior surgeries. And when I look at the original films, there's nothing to operate on. In other words, right. the first operation was not going to be helpful. And they start breaking down and breaking down and breaking yeah. down, and it is an absolute nightmare. Yeah. So let's. So, yeah. So let's. I guess I'm curious about the whole. It's the it's the business of medicine, right? I mean, right. how well has your has this work been received by other people that you've encountered in the medical community that maybe are are not thinking along the same the same lines as you are? Because obviously you've already said like if you're not doing surgery, then you're not you're not making money. Um, and so. 
I guess, I guess I would assume that that would mean there'd be a group of folks that might read what you've you've put together or talked to you about out these better outcomes you're getting for your patients and said, yeah, that's great. But I mean, why, why, why would we do that? We're putting ourselves out of business. I mean, how, how has the message been re- re- received, received yeah. in the medical community? Absolutely. Yeah, not very well. I mean, it's not, not <laughs> you aren't so popular well. anymore, are you? <laughs> no. So, it, but it's interesting because I've actually oh taken it very goodness. seriously. Is that by the way the data applies for bone and bone arthritis, hips and knees? Hmm. So, I'm sorry, hips, knees, and shoulders. You can have bone and bone arthritis, and the degree of pain correlates with the degree of stress, not with not with the severity of arthritis. So. I've had to practice practice the tools myself because both my knees are gone, particularly my right one. There's no cartilage in that knee. And if I do my own tools, I've actually dove into the whole process myself incredibly deeply the last 12 months. And if I work on what I'm doing consistently, my knees are fine. If I slack off, my knees hurt like crazy. So hmm. it's not well received and the stress levels around it have been extremely high. Um, I actually had a particularly rough week last week as I simply asked for some support um, to, you know, basically operationalize the process because it's hard for me to do both the non-operative stuff and the surgical part that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. The answer was no, it doesn't It doesn't pencil out financially. So it's, I don't know if it's the physicians as much wow. now. Is I think most physicians are motivated to help people. I think that the one factor that's been taken out of medicine that has to come back quickly is our capacity to listen. Yeah. And so yeah. the one thing that business medicine has done is they focus on procedures and profit margins. The problem is essentially every procedure we do for, uh, I'll talk about back pain for a second, we do for back pain has actually been shown not to work. So we know these facet blocks don't work, resonomies don't work, spinal cord stimulators don't really work. Um, so then even spine surgery is actually not one paper that I'm aware of, and I keep looking, that documents that a spine fusion for back pain is, is effective Yet they, for back pain, so they're projecting over a million spine fusions, low back spine fusions a year by 2020. And there's no data. It's going to ruin, it's going to ruin so, their life. You know what, though? It, it, I, I want to ask you yeah. one, one quick question because you mentioned the surgeries on, or the, you were considering having surgery on somebody who was at a four and a five. And they went through right. your procedure and they got better. Right. That for any logical physician is going to have a hard time understanding how that happens. Right. Well, but if you look at the so here's what's happening right now is that the neuroscience research right now is stunning. I there's a book that I am going to mention my publicist gets upset when you mention other books, but this book is unbelievable. Her name her name is Lisa Feldman Barrett out of Boston. It's called How Emotions Are Made, and she goes right into human consciousness. She's one of the top neuroscientists in the world. Um, you should get on your show if you could. Yes. I, I'm, I want to dying to meet her. But she goes right into how human consciousness is formed. And basically, the way we look at a cup or a chair, your brain has to unscramble the signals. The same thing goes for thoughts and concepts. They get embedded in your brain as, as clearly as looking at a car or a tree or a horse. So it's frightening. So our medical field in the public has been, I'll use the word, programmed to think that essentially everything in the body is created by a structural problem. It's not logical. I mean, your body chemistry changes by the millisecond. Yeah. Every thought is connected to a physical sensation and vice versa. Right. She uses the word called interoception, where 
for instance, I think you probably heard that a, when a parole board meets to parole prisoners, the chance of parole happening the hour before lunch is much less than the first three hours in the morning. <laughs> and she points out, I heard that from Gladwell's work years ago, and I go, hmm. Mm-hmm. Sure. But she points out the reason is that your your stomach is your your we get signals confused. In other words, you're waiting for lunch, and your stomach is saying you're hungry, even though you may not be conscious of it. So we're looking at this potential person going free. You have a bit more of a negative impression because you're hungry, even though mm-hmm. your brain doesn't register it that way. Sure. So sure it's makes sense. so so in the medical profession in the public right now we've been programmed to think that things you take your car to the shop and get it fixed mm-hmm. same thing with your body sure and probably ninety five percent of symptoms are are based on your thoughts and responding body chemistry so body chemistry affects your thoughts your thoughts affect your body chemistry so again it's just a unit it's a unit response and that's where I'm really anxious to get rid of this term mental health because it's really just the neurological unit of your body. And so whatever input is in there, if it's adverse physical input, of course, you're going to react to that badly. If it's adverse consciousness coming into your body, you have the same chemical reaction. So you don't get an autoimmune disorder, for instance, out of nowhere. I mean, where does that come from? Mm -hmm. And this assault of thoughts and concepts, again, which was shocking to me reading her book, gets as embedded as you and I talking and understanding each other's words. So... You have this sustained adrenal response that affects the immune system, and it's been documented for over 60 years, started in 1962, that stress kills people. Yes. I mean, well, I think I think the data is pretty clear on that, but people mm-hmm. haven't quite asked the question why. Anyway, so long answer saying, look, 95% of your symptoms in the body are physiological, not structural, and I think people get that in their head that they're going to come to a surgeon to get fixed. And that becomes its own concept that you actually can't break through. That's the one, hmm. really almost the only resistance to healing is actually this, I call it phantom brain pain, mm. that I, yeah. I got to be fixed, I got to be fixed, doctor's yeah. missing something. Yep. So that becomes its own concept, or I call the word circuit. So you have a, I call it selective psychosis almost. So you get this irrational set of thoughts. And it took me years to figure out that I can't argue with the patient because they can't hear me. They just can't. So they're not bad people. And I feel badly that they get this far along the process, but part of the disease actually blocks the treatment. Hmm. Interesting. Makes sense, doesn't yeah, it? it? Really does. does. The two things I would I would uh, add to this that makes sense. You you mentioned um, uh, first of all, we used to cut up body parts, basically meaning that um, we wanted to <clears throat> selectively look at um, one organ and consider that as a primary problem and never consider anything else. We've been doing that right. in healthcare forever, and that's what drove the high speci- uh, speciality of the of the field. But the other right. driving force, <clears throat> which comes back to what you talked about, about finances and everything else, was when hospitals started buying all the family practices all right. around them. So now right. they're managed by the very person that's de- or individuals that are dependent upon the referrals to have a successful business model. And right. then the physicians who, in their own right mind, are going, yeah, but I don't want to do it that way. And they're going, no, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, you right. had 15 minutes. Now you got 13 minutes. And unless well, something major changes there, we're in trouble. Seven minutes. So, my oh, gosh. Man. How can anybody even shake their hand? I mean, <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
And probably yep. six of that is typing stuff into the computer, actually. <laughs> With their back to the patient. With their back That's to the right. patient, That's yeah. exactly right. Uh, um, you so know, have you heard of this paper in 1927 by Francis Peabody, by chance, called The Care of the Patient? No. It's a classic. And he, first of all, this has actually been figured out for centuries. This is not new stuff. Um, but in 1927, he's out of Boston. He was lecturing medical students and is renowned for his concept about caring for the patient. And he was concerned back then that technology was going to intrude on caring for the whole patient. Mm -hmm. So what he didn't have back then was the neuroscience because when a patient's, for instance, being abused at home or an unpleasant situation, you know, relationship, et cetera, it changes the body's chemistry, right? right? So his point was that the secret of care is caring for the patient. So the number one thing that has to change in healthcare is simply the capacity to listen and be paid for it. So it should be volunteer. But see, Medicare came up with the fee schedule back in the 60s, I guess, when it came in, that they simply didn't pay for time spent with the patient. But the data shows over and over and over again that you have to listen to the patient. But now we know that if you're missing the, the social circumstances that you can't – whatever you do with medications, et cetera, will have no effect compared to the social circumstances. So there's a book called Loneliness Out of Chicago that points out that social connection – is right there with air, food, and water as far as basic need. And then Lisa Feldman Barry points out in her book the, how emotions are made, is that how, that's how human consciousness is formed. So when you lack social connection or you're being abused or neglected, the symptoms are identical to chronic pain. Yeah. They're identical. Makes sense. So we're now, at least, there's a little bit of a stir to do what's called social prescribing. And you've got to deal with the whole patient. And it doesn't take that long. It's not that hard to do. So that's the key issue here. We have to somehow flip the gear where the public needs to say, look, my body chemistry is off. 95% of symptoms are caused by altered body chemistry, not structural problems. And I've got to calm down. And again, it's not very hard to do this, but you, they've, it's this overall cultural, and, and that's what she points out in the book, How Emotions Are Made, is that you have these cultural norms that, again, those get programmed in our brain. And so if something is right or wrong, it's because society has said it's so. So right now we have this incredible pursuit of structures being the problem where it's really the body's physiology. Total body, total body view. I mean, yeah. bottom line is yep. patient comes right. in, even though they have a bad knee, the truth of the matter is if you don't look at the entire person you're probably going to miss something. Right. And the phantom limb pain is a real thing. People have the legs or arms yep. amputated, Absolutely. and the pain doesn't disappear at all. Correct. And that's a pretty big deal. And I've always wondered since medical school why that wasn't looked at more closely. Doesn't make sense. Well, again, the, neuro, the neuroscientist shows us the same thing. It's, it's, that's why I call versus body image, body image disorders to me are phantom brain pain. It's the same problem, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, so, yeah, so switching this paradigm on a public health basis I, I think is really critical. Mm -hmm. But anyway, going back to the original question, the bottom line is doctors want to listen. I think doctors in, so I don't want to be negative in the medical profession. It's a combination of factors. Everything is always more complex than it appears. Right. But, but doctors aren't trained in these concepts. Their compassion index, by the way, I put a course on compassion on a few years ago. And this thing called the Jefferson Compassion Scale is that medical students have a higher level of compassion than the average population, but it plummets by the third year in residency. Hmm. And that's even before they get into, into residency, which really you know, nails them to the wall. So 
physicians are trying to survive their training. It's hard for them to be compassionate, <laughs> yeah. but wow. it's still there. So if doctors were allowed to actually talk to their patients, mm-hmm. it's what keeps them inspired. That's, mm-hmm. that's the fun part of medicine, actually talking to the patients. And it's the one thing that we're not allowed to do. And I'll say this again, essentially every treatment that we do in spine care has actually been documented not to work, not to be effective. Wow. You are not going to be popular at, <laughs> at Christmas dinner if you keep this up. No. And that's why no. we love having you on the podcast. <laughs> no, we, I mean, that's, I mean, really, we're trying to oh shed my. some light on these, on these corners of medicine, which are not really corners anymore. I mean, no. it's becoming more and more mainstream to be talked about. And I think the more our listeners who are your sort of average, you know, families and moms and whatever, the more educated and the more information they have in their hands, the better equipped they are to be advocates for their own family and hopefully step into to the gap and, and drive change from from their kind of corner of the world, which is which is what we're hoping to do for folks. Yeah, so. and, and, and we, we just want to commend you <clears throat> on stepping up to do what you're doing, which is honestly addressing the facts as they lay and implementing them and learning from them. Because all of us know, as physicians, we would have probably treated patients differently 20 years ago if we knew today what we knew. And the bottom line is, if we act ignorantly now, even though research is present, then what does that make us as a group of physicians in the United States of America? So uh, we are going to spread the word on your book, and we hope that as we have questions and uh, questions that come along, that you would allow us to have an extra five or ten minutes here and there to answer those questions uh, and bring your book back into line with people's um, uh, review because this book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap Out of Chronic Pain, by Dr. Hanscom. A fabulous book. Uh, We appreciate you taking the time for the interview today. Well, thanks. I really enjoyed it. Okay. So, yeah, just one final thing. The thing that I got to tell you what drives me probably harder than it should is that in spine surgery, not only is spine surgery not effective, it's actually we're really, really hurting people. I mean, the the outcome of of a failed spine surgery is often borders on catastrophic. So we're really, really hurting people at a very high rate and really badly. So I get to see this every day, and I think probably 70% of spine surgery should not be performed. So the downside of a, of a failed spine surgery is just a disaster, yeah. and, and it's that, that's what drives me probably way harder than maybe I should be driven. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it's something to be proud of, proud of yourself, uh, as well as we're proud to get the chance to interview you. We appreciate it. Well, thanks. And I appreciate the, appreciate the opportunity. Okay. Have a blessed day. All right. Thank you. Amy Baker, Dr. Sean Benzinger. Humarian Health Podcast. Spilling our guts. For the well-being of yours. That's right. Thanks for having the guts to listen to the Humarian Health Podcast. If you have things you'd like to gut check, send us an email at gutcheck at humarian.com. 